How do you live your life like tomorrow matters? Perhaps you're already growing food, consuming less, connecting with your community. Perhaps you're already thinking hard, keen to see the world a little slower, greener, healthier. But where to begin? Here on the Future Setting Podcast, we dig deep into the hearts and minds of blissfully normal people doing bloody amazing things, unearthing their moments of contradiction, their hopes and fears for the future, and what galvanises them to action, in the name of inspiring all of us to do a little more in shaping a better future today. I'm Jade, and this is Future Setting. I was scrambled too then because I've just put two loaves of bread in the oven. And so the irony of being late for you because I'm trying to bake my own bread wasn't lost on me. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's both take a big deep breath and arrive to where we are. So today I'm chatting with Courtney Young, who I've known not really well, but certainly known of and had a huge amount of admiration for for a long time. She and her partner Ian, uh, the founders of Woodstock Flower. And uh, while they're actually new to their own piece of land, which is a little bit closer to where we live in Rutherglen in northeast Victoria, they are a fifth-generation farming family essentially, but they carved their own niche in that multi-generational farming enterprise by creating a stone mill that um, allowed them a direct path to market and Courtney's also a mother of two well they are parents of two and she is an artist and so there's a whole lot of things I'm really keen to chat with you about. Thanks for having me it's um yeah it's a real pleasure to be on your podcast I've you've interviewed some really amazing people and I've yeah been very inspired by some of the interviews that you've had and yeah it's really exciting to be on here. And now here you are to inspire others because you guys do incredible things and depending on which hat I'm wearing, um, my work hat leads me to know the the in-depth details of how incredible you are in terms of the leadership role that you play in the sphere that is often explained as the last frontier of the local food system and that's the grains system and Mm -hmm. it's um, dominated obviously by commodity growers and export plays a really big role and you have looked at that squarely and said we're going to we're going to change that we're going to rewrite that story and I would love to know how you made the decision to get involved and become so actively uh, engaged in rewriting that story. Yeah well I guess Ian and I met at uni and we were both studying um, kind of an environments degree um, so we kind of came at this from an environmental angle definitely um and yeah around the time that we met we started to see food production as uh like the avenue to create the you know the most large-scale most significant environmental change and so that's kind of how I came into farming coming from a not so farmy background my dad was an oyster farmer but you know we didn't live on a farm as such um but Ian grew up on the farm and was kind of like interested in farming, but um, yeah, kind of went down more of a landscape management um, angle. But then, yeah, we we met and we kind of started to be interested in farming and looking for an opportunity to kind of weasel our way into the family farm. <laughs> um, and Ian was always proud of the grain that his parents 
grew and like was always quite impressed with you know that really beautiful high protein wheats grown organically um and they always managed to yeah you know yield a little bit even in the, even in the droughts from what I'd heard and like he was just really proud of it and um yeah I came to love Woodstock as well the family farm and so we were looking for a, a way to kind of start our own business our own separate business um and then um yeah learn how to farm ourselves and 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 see where we could fit with the family farm so grain just felt like something that wasn't really being looked at at least on the the farmers market level that we were kind of exposed to while we were you know being Melbourne yuppies um (laughs) so yeah we just bought a little stone mill and set it up at Melbourne farmers markets and and just like tested the waters to see if there was interest. And yeah, there was, there was his interest. Um, yeah, we kind of had seen uh, dad's oats people yeah. um, doing doing it and we kind of followed their lead, I guess, um, thought like if they can do it with oats, then why can't we do it with, with wheat and um, yeah, try and get people thinking about where their grain actually comes from rather than just the meat or the veggies. Well, my understanding was that Dad's Oats was also the next generation who was mm. coming through and trying to work out how to weasel their way in. I love that terminology, but actually <laughs> I want to talk to you about that because succession planning, as we all know, if anyone who's in agriculture knows that succession planning is one of the single most complicated or complex and difficult uh, transitions to undertake. And you guys, despite you referring to it as a weaseling act, <laughs> Um, seem to have done that beautifully. Yeah, well, I mean, nothing's perfect. It look, might look perfect on Instagram. But, yeah, we've kind of um, – well, I hope Ian's parents are proud of what we're doing. Like, we just – we wanted to see the grain that his parents were growing being valued more. Um, you know, it was getting a, certifi- a certified organic premium – but still getting tracked off and there was just no connection to where it was ending up. And we just thought that there was so much more opportunity there. Um, And so we've kind of built the business around providing them a premium for the grain that they grow. Um, So an even higher premium than they would get from certified organic, um, yeah, grain traders. Um, And, yeah, so it, it hopefully makes... Ian's parents' grain growing um, enterprise more profitable. Um, and it's been really nice and challenging, but really nice to kind of learn more about how they run the farm. Um, and for Ian, I've been kind of shacked up with the kids a lot, um, but for Ian to be like around in those early days for shearing and and sowing and harvest and stuff has been really good. But I think um, for our for where we for where we're at at the moment, at, with you know two young kids, we kind of needed some more security. So we ventured out and looked to buy our own place. And so um, we're still definitely involved in the family farm or like connected to the family farm because we buy their grain. Um, but now we've got our own little farm 100 acres out of Rutherglen um, where we can start experimenting more um, with regenerative practices here and putting less pressure 
on Ian's family so that if they're like, you know, they are thinking about retiring at some point in the next five, 10 years, there's less pressure on them to be growing grain for our mill, um, mm-hmm. but we're there if they want to as well. Um, and so you'll grow grain in Rutherglen? Yeah, yeah. And you'll grow the variety of grain that your in-laws are growing? Yeah, so at the moment we're discussing like Ian's parents will grow one particular wheat that's our Spitfire wheat and we might grow the Rosella wheat, which is a different um, softer wheat for cakes and biscuits and things. So we're kind of able to like, yeah, uh, lessen the risk, like there's less risk associated with one farm um, and taking the pressure of Ian's parents as well, hopefully, by doing mm-hmm. that. Um, but, yeah, like succession is – and I'm the, I'm the daughter-in-law, so I obviously can't talk too much about it. But succession is super challenging. But I think um, for us it's been important for us because Ian has such a fam- family connection to the farm um, and such a sentimental connection to the farm. But it's been really important for us to develop our own business that's kind of – connected but also financially separate um, and stands on its own feet so that we were able to go out and buy this little farm but in maybe five ten years we're in a position to go back to the family farm if that opportunity came up like does that make sense like trying to keep our um, trying to maintain our independence but keep our our doors open as well yeah I think maintenance of not only financial independence but also identity independence Mm. and I think that sense of identity is a really important piece of the succession planning puzzle where lots of the next generation feel like they can't eke out their own space to breathe and and be experimental and discover and explore especially if they're taking over a multi-generational farm like yours was and so the other thing that you're really involved in so you mentioned a couple of varieties of wheat a moment ago Spitfire and Rosella am I right that you used to grow Corazan as well? Yeah, well, we're growing Corazan, well, we will be this year as well. Um, We've just got small quantities at the moment, just trying to bulk up the seed. So it's a, Mm -hmm. yeah, an ancient wheat. Um, It's not super great for breads, but it adds a really interesting flavour to, yeah, most baking. So yeah, I wish I'd spoken to you before I made a few fairly (laughs) fundamentally flawed loaves of bread with it. Yeah, it's it's like supposed to be lower in gluten being an ancient wheat, but mm-hmm. um, it, that means it also lacks that kind of extensibility to create yeah. a, a, a loaf with um, structural integrity. Um, but we also grow... Boy, rye. that sounds fairly technical. I'm not even <laughs> remotely close to building loaves with structural integrity. <laughs> oh, um, we also grow a rye and a spelt. Um, and then we've got a heritage wheat called a darts imperial, um, which we're excited to bulk out as well and see what that brings to, to our bakers as well. And so your days are on the farm, they're with the kids. You've also often got a paintbrush in your hand, (laughs) but that's one thing I also want to talk about and I'll scratch the paintbrush bit in a minute, but I want to talk about the fact that you operate in a way that is fundamentally collaborative and open by nature. So I know that you've you've undertaken projects with Brizzy's Food Connect and that um, Black Duck, especially their Native Grains Network that's that's emerging. 
speak so incredibly highly of you. You're incredibly connected, really well respected and beautifully generous in your willingness to share knowledge and mistakes and um, experimentation with others. Where do you think that comes from? Oh, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I started out in kind of food as an intern with the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance and Tammy was president, still is president, I believe. Um, <laughs> and there was like just the biggest message that I took away from that experience, um, not just with Tammy, but with working with lots of producers is, and just that kind of, that the how important transparency is for building a collective movement, like, and how important it is to be generous and to be open and how important relationships are. Um, and that's something that Ian and I have really tried to incorporate in our business. Um, and like we're still very much a private business that's um, really boring in that sense. But having as in um, you're not a social enterprise or a cooperative or no, <laughs> no right. <laughs> we're just very much a, a yeah, a partnership and um, you know, we have to have the weekly finance meetings and all that. But just really trying to embed um transparency in the way that we deal with our customers and we deal with community around the community around us like Ian is always on the phone with farmers and farmers that want to be millers and like if you looked at it from a purely business sense like that sounds kind of counterintuitive to be talking to people who are trying to set up the exact same business model as we are but I feel like it's all helping one another like um yeah the more transparent and open we are then we're all kind of working towards the same kind of it's not an end goal but we're all trying to build something together and um well systemic shift yeah I think you're you're so large in your thinking that you've been able to identify that while you need to be financially viable what we actually all need are critical systemic shifts in the way we operate and the way we uh, build our habits and access our food and connect to one another and so rather than going forward with a lens of competition you go forward with a lens of collaboration definitely and like we can't all be in our own silos so to speak like we really need to be true wheat farmer (laughs) (laughs) we need to be yeah connecting with with other people so I guess um yeah the connection with food connect came about because I probably I knew Robert um from the AFSA food sovereignty days so we've kind of had a relationship over over time um and he's yeah been really interested in what we've been doing with our business and Ian must have mentioned to him that Ian's little brother Hamish was thinking about building a mill and so Robert just like put down the money and was like mm-hmm. all right <laughs> and so Ian build that Ham- mill yeah Ian and Hamish had to build this mill and Hamish did such an amazing job like he's really put together yeah this like he's very skilled craftsman that um it's a yeah, stone mill yeah. that's been hand yeah definitely and there's just like it was a challenging experience but um and I think like it's it's opened a doorway for Hamish to like to go into mill building in the future which is really exciting mm-hmm. um 
Yeah, and I yeah, I just think that that came about through relationships and and being open minded and like seeing an opportunity and taking it up. Um, we're very privileged that we could we could do that. Mm. On the weekend, I was presenting at the Off Grid Living Festival, and someone asked a question um, from the audience, and they said, "You speak really strongly about the value of community and um, interpersonal relationships, Jade. Do you think they are more?" important or equally as important as the actions that generally genuinely impact the environment and my response was I think they are one of the same that relational aspect of the way we build our lives and make our decisions and um, interact with the world around us both human and environmental it requires massive shift and so you opened this conversation by saying your background was that you came from environmental academic yeah. world and you've now gone into farming and whether um doesn't matter what kind of farming you do that puts you in in deep connection to the land and the seasons and the weather and all of those things there's a reason farmers talk about the weather and it's sort of this colloquial joke but it's, there's a reason mm, from your perspective what do you think? You know, you've come at it with a slightly different lens. Your on-ramp was um, environmental activism or mm. environmental understanding yeah. and now you're, you're, you just said that the reason we're working is because of our ability to build relationships and you said that a number of times, Ian's often on the phone to other farmers and, yeah. you know, you're talking with me right now and this will go public. <laughs> what do you, what yeah. do you think? No, definitely. Like I, yeah, I came at this from an environmental kind of angle and I'm becoming more and more interested in the socio-political context that our, we're trying to build our business in. And um, yeah, like I can't, yeah, it's such a big question because I like I've been thinking a lot about land ownership as well and how um, like we we got into farming because we were interested in creating environmental change, um, but if if to create significant long term environmental change requires it requires you to buy into into land and land is land ownership in Australia and I guess globally it's so tied up with class and race. Um, and so we're in a very privileged position to have like a connection to a family farm that we were able to leverage so that we could buy our own place. Um, like we're so privileged to be able to do that. Um, and so just like understanding and, and trying to, yeah, understanding, um, yeah, the social, social political context of how we got to be here on unceded Aboriginal land is like, it's it's really confronting, um, and so and when we're pro when we're producing food and and selling food, like there's this, yeah, there's this huge, there's these huge socio political issues that are influencing us, and I don't think farmers uh, have to address those issues. Like I think it's, you know, there's the CSA model, which I think is is really amazing and we've had a crack at that ourselves. Um, Did it work? Um, no, I don't think, like, 
it's not been a total failure and I think it could be like a um I think it could be something that we could try try again but the the way the our, the our iteration didn't work um I just think flour is it, it requires work you know you have to turn flour into bread um so if we had a bread CSA that would that would yeah. work simple people yep. can eat bread but with flour you have to have like a proper routine in your kitchen that you're baking every week and that's kind of what we were expecting of people and so um to work on the on the kind of more local scale that we wanted it to work is is just not really feasible with the kind of lifestyles that the majority mm. of people are. and the population you're in a tiny town of 2000 yeah. people and there's four villages around you of another 2000 people but they're all half an hour away and yeah, you just don't have the population masses. Definitely. Although I have to say during COVID, you were the first phone call I made. When we got <laughs> locked down, I rang you directly and said, ah, I cannot run out of flour. <laughs> <laughs> that was really interesting because, yeah, we had people like you, you like who are genuinely already kind of baking and, and already doing like already in that world and you're just kind of like seeing this happen and you know who to who to connect with to like secure your flower or whatever and then we had people that were a bit late to the table and kind of connecting with us out of fear and that was pretty pretty wild like we had some quite aggressive phone calls during that time that they were just like expecting us to to drop everything for them and, and deliver flower to them um wow when I, I don't even know if they would know how to bake with our flour because it's like whole grain and um, yeah. it's Isn't bit... that intriguing that in times of fat people are much better at their inter interaction between each other and as soon as there's this fear-based existence people's decorum changes completely. Yeah, definitely. And so that's like part of the reason we went into, we tried a, the CSA model, we called it a CSM, like a community-supported mill. Um, because we wanted to work out a way that we could make sure that the people that we that are already connected with us and following us and using our flower that we can we can always get flower to them rain hail or shine um, but I think it's 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 just not the model for for flower um, at least yeah not in our you're part of the open road project aren't you yeah yeah that's where I've ordered my last lot of flower from you through because I haven't spoken to you for a while but I've certainly got your flower in my cupboard yeah yeah cool yeah um that's this like those sorts of collaborative systems I think work much better for our kind of bulk product like so for those who are listening the open road project has been delivered by open food network and we've had Kirsten uh, and Serenity on before in season maybe one or two quite a few episodes ago but go hunting they're incredible and they have created this concept called the Open Road Project where they are aggregating a number of different um, co-ops or, or food, sort of smaller food systems, localised food systems, and they're connecting the eaters to the growers directly through an online platform. And then it means that as the eater I can jump on and I can order Courtney's flour and I can also order uh, apples from down the road because ours in this region have finished or tomatoes because ours in this region have finished or whatever it might be and you can do a weekly shop from provenance identified um, really transparent uh, practice. Mm. Now, Orphan have been awesome. They, we started out with them and it's been nice to 
see the different paths they've gone down and how we can fit into that. It's been really cool. Mm. Mm, um, but yeah, back yeah. to the, um, like that kind of social context, I think it's interesting, like it's kind of frustrating that we're working with flour that's such a, that's considered such a staple ingredient and it's been, like you were saying at the start, it is kind of considered that last frontier of the farm-to-table movement. Um, So people understand that it should be a couple of dollars per kilo because that's what it's always been Mm. on the supermarket shelf. Um, But for us, like working on a very small scale and um, with an organic family farm and, and trying to, um, do a lot of the middleman activities, if you want to call them that, um, for better or worse, ourselves. Like it, it costs more like $7 a kilo. So it's been like, um, yeah, it's it's just, it's awful to, to like, to understand that that's not accessible to a lot of people. Um, mm. That's the true cost of what, like that's what it costs us. And that's what we need to charge to get to get by on this farm and to to keep our family afloat but it's yeah like there's this tension the way you do the practices that you undertake yeah managing all levels of the value chain are uh they they have embedded cost which are often minimized when you can extrapolate it out across a long supply chain and there's lots of invisible costs that just get absorbed along the way but actually at your scale you can't yeah definitely and so yeah it's just um, yeah, kind of uncomfortable to know that like that really sets our product as a like it can it's considered a premium product because it's it's mm-hmm. so expensive, but it's in our mind it's such a genuine and like it's not that premium like it's just grain that's been ground up, but can, compared to the industrial um, kind of product that's on the supermarket shelf it it gets it's yeah it's all relative like it's just relatively very expensive so how much of australia's wheat industry is exported oh god i would know i would <laughs> say ask me those questions <laughs> i have no idea but yeah like obviously huge amounts and i think i don't think we import import much wheat apart from in pasta which is really interesting like we Australian wheats are amazing in pasta but for some reason we've like there's this like prestige associated with Italian durums and so all of our pasta that's in the supermarkets are made out of Italian durums Um, but yeah apart from pasta I I understand that we don't import much wheat Um, yeah, but export a lot. Like so, before Ian and I started milling, um, Ian's dad was exporting rye, I think, and rosella wheat for noodles. Um, but now we're using it all here, which is a really you use nice. all of it. Yeah, yeah. Wow, we've got a fair oh, bit. That is of incredible. Colors. Yeah, so we're not they're not exporting anything at the moment. Like maybe they'll. Um, They'll sell, not necessarily export, but maybe they'll have to sell some if we have another really good year. But, um, yeah, we're using it all ourselves, which is nice. That is incredible. And you have single-handedly created those paths to market. 
you've knocked on doors, you've built relationships, you've found logistics solutions, you've created the brand, you know, all it just, it's such a massive complex process that you just had the gumption to bite off and chew like hell until you found a way. Yeah, I think I was talking about this to Hannah from Alt Farm. Have you met Hannah yet? No. She's, you should get in touch with her. She's lovely. She's um, she's a farmer just out of Beechworth and they're trying to rehabilitate an ex-pine plantation using Oh, pigs. yeah, I do know them. That's yeah. Alt Farm. Oat Farm, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, I haven't met her. We spoke with them when they were contemplating buying the land. Oh, And we cool. said, bloody go for it. We need yeah. young blood with, you know, really creative solutions to things. And they yeah. seem to be going like the clappers with so many things already being turned off the land. No, they're doing so well. But Hannah and I were talking about like how how to get how to get that ball rolling with customers and stuff. And I think we were quite lucky because we were one of the only farm-based flour mills in Victoria that had like a fairly public presence online. So people just kind of came to us. Mm. Um, But I think us starting out at the farmer's markets, we met a couple of um, bakers. So we met Michael James, who was at Tivoli Road um, Bakery in South Yarra, and it was – um, yeah, quite the institution. Everyone really and continues to really respect Michael James mm-hmm. um, and John Reed from Redbeard Bakery yeah. also got yeah. in touch with us. Um, and so John sadly passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, oh God, was it last year now? It's gone so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and John was quite a, a mentor f- for us. And so it's been pretty rough to lose him. Um and Michael James has also been really supportive of us. So I think just having having those two guys that were like quite well respected in the industry um, kind of champion us has been really valuable. Like we yeah. um, probably wouldn't have found as many connections in the time that we did if it wasn't for their support. Um, but, yeah, it all just came down to relationships and we were able to do that by being at farmer's markets and having that kind of physical presence beyond just Instagram, like just meeting people and, and yeah, getting but to But I think them. also you've put the time in on the things that don't return in dollars. You know, you did an intern with Australian Food Solve and you've actively gone out of your way to attend events that you don't get paid to be at but you speak willingly and openly and generously wherever you go and you've sought out partnerships that don't necessarily return financially straight away but they're part of the bigger ecosystem that we're all trying to work towards. So I think there's this um, sort of sacrifice of time and financial return for the sake of something bigger and I think people recognise that and they cherish that. So few people do it now. And it's so transactional relationships. Yours are not. That's not how you go about building your relationships and your networks. And I think that's really what sets you apart. Yeah, thank you. That's a really nice way of looking at it. <laughs> I, we um we did our holistic management course, um, I don't know, a year or two ago. And that's been really nice because, like, we do get thrown at, like, a lot of opportunities come our way for yeah speaking and and things like that interviews and and things and 
sometimes it can get overwhelming and you are like, oh, I wish I could get paid for this. Yeah. <laughs> but if you, you can like kind of understand, like, and oftentimes they're people that I know anyway. So there's that kind of, I want to help them. I want to talk to them like you. I want to talk to you. Um, yeah. But there's like, if it's, if it's having our holistic context, which we, we came up with through this holistic management course, like just basically what type of life we want to create for ourselves. Um, and it's, it's quite, it's, it's quite vague. Like it's basically just that we want to be joyful and healthy and connected to, to land and community. It's really simple. It's um, just a couple of sentences, but it means that all of our decisions that we make that might not be bringing in money as such, but we can, we can weigh all those decisions against that holistic context. And that's where it's like super easy to say yes to um, like engagement opportunities and, and things like that, because it's, that's, it fits, it's relationships. It means that we're getting, you know, we're connecting with our community and it's um, often an opportunity to learn more about our connection to land and, and being around people is yeah brings us joy and is healthy for us because we're so isolated out on the farm so Mm. I think having that holistic context has been really important for us the last couple of years and it really hones in on your values not your not the outcomes yeah or the the boxes that you need to tick but it it gives you an opportunity to sit and really deeply know what the legacy will be that you leave because it's values centric, not outcome centric. Yeah, definitely. I've been thinking about that a lot. Like we get, um, cause we've just moved to this farm. We're kind of very much outcome oriented at the moment. And we've had to like take a step back and try and slow down because there's always going to be something that we're striving for and things will they're always like it's never going to be perfect here on the farm, and I'm sure you can relate to this, Jay. Like, like, yeah, it's hard to just like sit down and just appreciate what you've done. Mm. And sorry, my phone keeps going off. It's hard to the requests yeah. to come and speak, to <laughs> do <It's>, interviews, and <laughs> collaborate. I'm not as popular as I'm making it out to be. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we've been trying to be a bit more deliberate about the process and enjoying, like, there's so many things on this farm that we would like to change, but let's just enjoy being here because we worked so hard to get here to begin with. So, um, And I think yeah. taking a step back and acknowledging that it is slow when it's two yeah. of you on a family farm and there's not oodles of cash to throw at things, they go at the pace of you as the human that's sitting behind it as quickly as yeah. you can make the decisions and find the time to get around life with two young kids, it's really slow. And we yeah. don't live in a world that it values slow. We live in a world that um, honours glossy, shiny, speedy success. And yeah. actually that that's not sustainable. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we've kind of, yeah, experienced a bit of burnout over the last year because we've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old and they're trying to grow this business and they've been good little wake-up calls to just slow Mm -hmm. down and um yeah acknowledge our process over a longer period of time as well like rather than just thinking about what did I achieve today let's think about what did we achieve 
or what did we maintain even like over the last yes that maintenance versus moving forward thing yeah yeah Speaking of going slow, I need to get my bread out of the oven. Two seconds, okay. I can smell it and I don't wish to burn it. Hang on. just. Bit. Okay, while I'm getting my bread out of the oven during the interview, I'm going to share a little story with you, which is a little bit different for what we normally do. But we have gone and got ourselves a sponsor. I know this is new, but bear with us. Uh, these guys are a wine company, which is also a little bit new for me because I'm not a big drinker. And for those who know me, um, you know that I did work in the wine industry for a while and I loved it, but it's not a massive part of my life. But actually, that's not the primary reason I said yes to working with these guys. We are working with the Hidden Sea Wine Company. They're a premium wine company and their tagline is that they make wines that matter for people who care. And that is because this wine saves the sea. For every bottle of the hidden um, sea wine that you buy, they remove and recycle 10 plastic bottles from the ocean. They started this in July 2020, and since then they've removed 13,741,837 bottles from the ocean. That is massive. Their goal by 2030 is to remove 1 billion. My goal is that we don't have plastic by then, but let's see what happens. The other thing that actually appeals to me is that the wine itself is actually beautiful. I went camping with some girlfriends a couple of weeks ago. None of us are really big drinkers, but it just happened to be that I had a couple of these bottles rolling around in the back of my car and it was the perfect night. It was a clear night. We had the fire lit. None of us had been off our farms or out of our houses for a couple of weeks because of a whole stack of stuff um, going on. And we actually ended up going through quite a few more of bottles of the wine than we ever imagined we would and then this weekend I'm actually at a friend's birthday and she said how about you bring a bottle of that wine with you it was good it was really good and so even though I'm not a big wine drinker I can actually genuinely vouch for the fact that myself and quite a lot of us actually enjoyed what was in the glass and it did good all right back to the conversation with the beautiful Courtney my bread is now out of the oven over to you how does it look? Did it work? It looks really good. It's because I'm on the phone to you. <laughs> I need to talk to you twice a week. <laughs> well done. Because they don't always. <laughs> Actually, a woofer um, gifted me a couple of bread-proving baskets and actually oh, they revolutionised things. Yeah. And Fiona from Bonavista Farm said to me when I interviewed her, it all comes down to your starter get your starter really healthy and so I just put a bit of time into both of those things and seemingly I'm not producing bricks awesome well done well all the time anyway um now I want to talk about the fact that you said earlier that Ian was really proud of what his folks had done Uh and he was pretty young and he brought that sense of pride to your relationship and then to the public that were listening to him talk about what they were doing. And I'm often challenged by the fact that agriculture sometimes suffers a bit of a reputational shortcoming. Young kids, I'm not going to be a farmer, lots of things I want to do but not that. Um, It was incredible the first time I met you guys years ago to hear him talking about um, what his parents did and hearing the pride in his voice, how do we get the next generation to fall in love with food production? Oh, I don't know. I think Ian's just really lucky to have parents that are 
proud of what they do too so maybe it rubs off but I think Ian probably I mean I'm speaking for him so it's hard but I think him moving away from the farm and then coming back like he went away for uni and then was able to come back with fresh eyes like that seems to be a bit of a a trend um, that you can appreciate what your folks are doing once you've had a little bit of space from the the place Um, but also Ian's parents were pretty pioneering like they are one of the only certified organic producers in the area so I think like it's it's easy to be impressed with what they're doing like they've really stuck it out through some pretty strong droughts and um like they're very much embedded in the community but they're also kind of outsiders as well in some in some way um yeah that is a paradox that lots of farmers seem to find themselves in especially if it's a multi-generational farming community and they've got cousins and brothers on the next farm over Mm. yeah how have they navigated that or is that speaking on their behalf yeah probably um yeah I don't know I think like they've been they've made an effort to um to stay involved in in farmers groups like organic farmers groups um and yeah, I think that's the beauty of rural communities as well is that you kind of you do have to put up with your neighbors even if you may have different ideas about things. And so like I don't think it really bothered them that much cuz people wouldn't really give them that much hell either. Like they yeah, I'm just assuming here. But <laughs> I think um <laughs> like they just have they did their holistic management course as well and they just have stuck by their values and they know what they care about. Um and I think that's rubbed off on their kids as well. Um and yeah, having like a few um networking groups like um the Riverina Organics group and and things like that where they can go and meet with other like-minded farmers has been really valuable but yeah I think it's the beauty of Berrigan like everyone is very welcoming even though it might seem quite conservative in some ways I think everyone has been super welcooming and open of what Ian and I are doing even though it's seems quite rogue yeah yeah (laughs) the next generation they've got all these ideas yeah (laughs) It's been interesting though, like even though Verigan was, yeah, super welcoming, um, it's been interesting moving to Rutherglen and because there's a bit of a wine region here. Um, mm, the oldest in Australia, I think. Is it? Yeah, right. I'm still learning about the history of this place. It's pretty remarkable. Um, it's like there are a few young families here that are, are coming back to the, to the wineries um, or back to the farms and so they just – they kind of get what we're doing because there's already that connection from the grape to the final product. Yeah. So that's been that's right. They're value-added. That You know, grape growers are usually value-adders as well because they make yeah. wine. Yeah, even though it's, like, still it. very much a tradition and, like, I'm sure there's a lot of um, strife <laughs> that young people returning to the vineyard experience. But... Um, yeah, I just feel like they've been, they just kind of understand what we're doing a bit more, which has been really nice. Um, mm, and they're willing to let you have a crack. Yeah, yeah. And they kind of mm. get that like, yeah, if you if you put in um, a bit of effort into how you're sowing your crop, it's going to result in a, a, a better product for your customer. So that's that's a nice 
um, journey to be on and to be learning how they're learning about how they're marketing their product and um, yeah there's like a, a sense of community here that's um, a bit more business based I think like businesses working together whereas around Berrigan um, the sense of community is is more family based and you don't talk about business so much so that's an interesting um, change Social for shift. us. I love that every small community in Australia and probably the world has its own nuances. Yeah. And it's why cookie cutter solutions don't work anywhere because yeah. you need to change the language and you know change the the frame that it sits in so that everybody yeah. can access it in a way that they understand and feel trusted and safe with. Yeah. Now you're an artist. You yes. Uh, starting a new business on a new farm. Well, it's not a completely new business, but you are on a new farm in a new community and you have two small children under school age. When the heck do you find time to put brush to canvas? Um, I don't know. I just You've just done an exhibition. I know. I, I, I get up <laughs> early. I, re- I listened to a podcast. Of, I think it was, I don't know who it was. It was a writer's podcast and so many writers, maybe you did this too, Jade, they get up early mm. and write. And so I thought, I right, well, I'll, I'll get up early and I'll paint. And so that's probably how I, I get the bulk of my work done. Um, but it's just a really nice way to, like, do something for myself. Um, and it's super important to me. Like, it's not just like a, a pastime, a cathartic thing. Like, it's mm. something that I feel like I have to do and I have to, like, get it out of my system. Um, and so if I get up early and I get it done, then there's no excuses and nothing gets in the way. Um, but it's definitely a struggle. Like it's, it's been, it's been hard, but yeah, like I say, I just kind of have to make time for it. Um, and it, it means that Ian and I have to be quite, um, clear around our roles in the business as well. Um, and that's kind of happened naturally because I've taken on the bulk of the kind of, um, childcare um because I breastfed both of our kids for two years um so we've kind of naturally fallen into some roles in our business um whereas when we started out we were kind of both doing everything and it was all just yes. chaos but now we kind of see the value in like Ian does takes the orders and I just do the comms or you know like we kind of really set boundaries and we have yeah those weekly meetings where we can once the kids have gone to bed, finally talk to each other because even just like <laughs> we can't talk about business at the dinner table. The kids just like sense it and they just raise hell. So <laughs> we have to find child-free <laughs> moments Moment. to like get on top of things. But, yeah, it's a definite scramble but we we find our own order in the chaos sometimes. It's a hard time of life, isn't it? It lasts for a really short amount of time, but when you're in it, you just can't imagine ever getting out of it. Yeah, I yeah. I was actually talking to Charlie the other day about this. He was like looking at the kids so fondly. My Charlie? Like, yeah. <laughs> All right. Oh, you came to Berry Peak when I wasn't yeah. here. Yeah, he was looking at our kids so fondly and just saying, oh, it goes so quickly. And I was like, <laughs> I hope so. Like this is like so intense. <laughs> Yeah, he thinks your children are beautiful. He never comments on other people's kids, but he did say to me, oh, I met their kids today. They're beautiful. <laughs> They're pretty wild. But, and it yeah, does make no, you I, feel really old to be the one that says, oh, it goes so fast. Don't wish it away. <laughs> but it's so true. We're at the other side of it now and our kids don't want to know us. They're 10 and yeah. 14. It's yeah. gone. 
Yeah. Oh, that's that must be a whole different ball game. I yeah. I feel like it's um yeah, trying to find those times to just enjoy your kids is like a challenge for anyone, let alone when you're running a farm and a business. Like it's um something And have a creative need to paint. Yeah, yeah, something we have to be really deliberate about and get the diaries out and schedule things. Um, Mm. But I find that my painting really complements our farm and business kind of situation too. Like I think it's it's good for me to exercise that part of my brain and, um, yeah, think about like think about the issues that are affecting our business on a more kind of conceptual level is really interesting as well. When you say um, everything needs to be pretty deliberate, I imagine you guys, well, I've spoken to you guys enough to know that you are quite intentional in just about everything that you do. You're very conscious. You're very aware and awake of the impact that you have on others and and the work that you're doing and, and, you know, why you're doing it. Is there anything that you do on a day-to-day basis, you know, you're, you've just said you wake up really early to ensure you can fit your painting in that you need to do, and I talk about ritual a lot and the place that that has in connecting us to place, to land, to community, to ourselves. So anything that you do in amongst the chaos of the busyness of your life that you think would be lovely to hear from others? For oh, others? Um yeah, this is why I bought your book, Jade, so you could teach me. Um, <laughs> I I think like just they're not it's not so much ritual, but the chores of feeding the animals I've come to appreciate at the moment because they're just something that I have to I have to do. But it's quite enjoyable if you have the right mindset. We have this pig at the moment and he <laughs> he needs to be fed morning and night and it's quite tedious. But it's like sometimes if I'm like running around after kids and having to go into town and run errands and things, it's a nice moment to just stop and go outside and take a breather while you're feeding the pigs and the chooks and um, the dog. Like it's that's what I'm finding a bit of solace in at the moment. Mm. Um, otherwise, like we're pretty – like our the dinner table is like what structures our day as well like breakfast together and dinner together um they're kind of yeah bookend our day quite nicely and um Mabel we did it a couple of times and Mabel my eldest she really likes um talking about our three good things at the end of the day which we sometimes forget to do but I it's yeah it's really gorgeous when she thinks about her like what what were the best bits of the day and often it's just like the chocolate that she had or something really boring but it's a nice way for us to all kind of reflect and um yeah slow down after the chaos and really hear each other yeah it's a nice way to start because like if you ask Mabel at the moment like how was your day like it's too big a question for her um like she doesn't know how to answer it like she'll just say it was good or whatever but three good things she for some reason she can it's something that she can do and she can she enjoys it so that's been nice yeah that's beautiful 
And before we wrap up, for those, because education is a massive part of this. Flower's just flower, right? Well, actually, no, it's not. And we're talking to the person that can explain why it's not. And education is this massive extra behemoth that everyone needs to take a little small role in. But for you guys, it's a much bigger part of your business. If you could leave our listeners with something that is food for thought to ponder on why they need to consider what flower they're using, where it's come from, how it was grown, what would it be? Yeah, I guess um, thinking of flower as an ingredient that has flavour and nutritional value um, has been a big game changer for the way that I've baked. I've always baked like since I was little and um, I really love it, but I'd often, I never thought about the flower and you were always like adding fruit or chocolate or something to add the flavour. But there's a whole world of baking where you actually consider what what is that main ingredient. It's not just this thing that holds it all up. It's like the act, it's the flavour, it's the nutritional value. And I think um, whole grain flour is is just, it's so special. Like if you think about a seed of wheat, um, it's it's a seed, it's not just a grain. Like it holds all the life and energy it needs for that seed to then create a plant. And when you're consuming whole grain flour, then you're consuming all all the yeah the the energy and the nutrients that you need to sustain life like whole grain flour is so good for you in terms of fiber and yeah flavor and um and then all those micro and macronutrients um just acknowledging that that element of it i think is is really special and then also just that we grow so much wheat in australia like it's i should know the stats jade um but it's like I just think it's something that we should know more about like if we're eating it three times a day for some people then we should just know where it's coming from and we should know how it's grown and, and how it's milled um and the name of our farmer yeah yeah um yeah I think my understanding of a local grain economy which is something that we're always trying to talk about is where grain is valued for its diversity and regionality so just understanding that there are so many different types of grains that taste different and have different properties when you're baking but then also those differences are affected by where it's grown as well so grain that's grown at Woodstock on Ian's parents farm is going to taste different to grain that's grown here in Rutherglen Um, and that's I think that's really exciting and I hope more bakers and home bakers and chefs and and the lack can tackle that. And we all went crazy baking, learning how to bake over COVID. So now we have all these uh, comrades that are standing by your side ready to try the difference that, it, well, in wine they call it the terroir, don't they? And so yeah. it's, the, it's the same but just exactly. with something that um, has been commodi- commodified. Yeah. Let's decommodify it. Let's humanise it. Yeah, I like that. Let's humanise it. Let's give it a little personality. <laughs> Thank you in your mad, crazy, busy day for making some time to chat. No, thank you. It's been lovely. Hey, thanks, guys. I'm now off to eat fresh bread that I know the provenance of that isn't a brick. <laughs> 
the magic of talking to someone who has such talent. Next week, we are going to introduce you to Claire Dunn. She's this magnificent creature who has been inspiring people to consider their deep connection to the natural world and we'll we'll talk about her year without matches which is the title of the books that she wrote some time ago uh, following a year in the bush on her own as always thanks so much to the guys who uh, are contributing via patreon i know it's only a little tiny contribution every month but when there's a few of you it makes such a massive difference there's a whole stack of hidden costs in pulling together a podcast not least of which is the time that goes into it and as much as I love every conversation I have there's a huge amount of coordination and research and um, conversational skill development yeah that's a thing let's call it a thing Uh, that goes behind the scenes to pulling this whole thing together. Actually, in truth, the most complicated thing is the tech. And I have the beautiful Hayley, who is helping me do that this year, now that uh, Miss Katie is bunkered down at Meliodora in Dalesford and not with us anymore. Uh, Well, she's on this earth. Um, So I just want to thank everybody who is contributing. If a monthly contribution is too much we've also got the option to buy a cuppa and both of those links are at the bottom of every single episode in the show notes it really does go incredibly appreciated and uh, certainly noticed so thank you right from the very tip of my toes the bread's going cold i'll see you next week with claire bye